The Lord be with you. I know our numbers are uh, down this morning, but I wanted to uh, say hello. I know folks, uh, as, as Beth just said, uh, we've got some folks in Mexico, and I know several others have gone to Florida recently. So our prayers and thoughts are with them. Uh, I'm very excited. This is our last uh, week with uh, Carl. Um, sad to see him go. Uh, but the next week we start in on the Gospels. And uh, I just want to give you an overview of the Gospels so you can know in your own um, you know, Bible reading exactly how that's going to go. Because I know some of you have shared with me that you are reading the Bible, you know, genre by genre as we go, or maybe you're just taking a, a book in that genre and studying that book, and that's whatever you do, that's great. Uh, our hope is that through this class that your reading is more informed and that you feel like you can tackle it and understand what the Bible is saying. So um, next week, I will start in on kind of an introduction of the Gospels. The following week, I'm going to Florida. So Pastor Ben will be here and he'll be teaching on the Gospel of Mark. So at Princeton, he had a professor by the name of Clifton Black. And Clifton Black is uh, the Markin scholar, right? If you have a commentary on Mark and it's not Clifton Black, you might as well throw it out because it's not that good. I'm joking. That was, that was a bad joke. Um, uh, now, I, uh, when I was at Pittsburgh, we had a professor by the name of Dale Allison who was a Matthew scholar. So not that I am a I'm a student of a scholar, um, and so that doesn't make me a Matthew scholar, but uh, I sure learned a lot in his class on that. So we will go through the four Gospels. Uh, I know Dave had recently done his Tuesday morning Bible study on Acts. I think that was all of last year. Um, and because it, that's really a, separate, a whole different genre than Gospels, we're not going to delve into that. Um, but getting back to Gospels for a moment, we'll start with an introduction, and then you'll have homework. So I'm telling you your homework now. Your homework in one week, I will say, read the Gospel of Mark before next week. So that's like two to three chapters a day. There's only 16 chapters in Mark. It's a short one, right? Uh, if you sat down, you could read the whole thing in 90 minutes, right? If, you're, if you can keep concentrating. Um, so if you're a slow reader or you like to take your time, do a chapter a day, I'm telling you now, in two weeks, you'll be studying Mark, right? So get that, uh, get that read. Then, then we'll go through Matthew and, John, Matthew and Luke, and then John, and then we'll cover various topics throughout the whole of the Gospels. Come with questions, right? I love being, um, morning, Carl. Uh, I love being challenged by questions, and I love learning. I have been loving this process. You know, I took a class on the Gospels, but... I am, uh, I've been reading through several books that I've never touched, you know, dusted off a few from seminary that I may never, got, I may never have gotten to. Um, and so I've been learning a lot in the last few months, and I'd love to be challenged to learn more. So if there's something on your heart as you're reading the Gospels, take note of it, bring those questions to class. And then um, after, uh, we'll take a break on Easter, and right after Easter, we will start into Revelation. Reverend Carrie Stuman, who I've spoken with a few times, but I've never actually met her in person. I'm very excited. This is uh, Zev Rosenberg's uh, spouse. So she will be, um, she's fascinated and loves Revelation. So she'll be teaching for a few weeks there. And then we'll have Linda Leon uh, at the very end of our class talking about reading scripture devotionally. So that's kind of the rest of the arc of where we go from here. 
So just wanted to give you um, a little commercial. Um, yeah, absolutely. About. No, no, Mark is in two weeks. In two weeks, Pastor Ben will be teaching on Mark. So there, if it's about a chapter a day. I'm doing an introduction. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Good morning, sir. Can I pray for us? Do you have a th- thumb drive? Okay. So we're just going to kind of run off that a little bit today. Okay. Just sort of the summary notes. Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. Apologies, by the way, for my tardiness. I just can't get myself oh, together some days. Have... <laughs> yeah, if that works for you, that's uh, great. We'll find out. Okay, we'll find out. Oh, it's already gone. Let us pray. Yes, let's. There we go. Almighty God and Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, for the opportunity again to open your holy word and to consider how your spirit inspired uh, these ancient writers to pen these words of love to communities and letters um, that were dear to their hearts. Even though we don't know the whole story, God, we appreciate a glimpse into this community, these communities, and these uh, these love letters between uh, uh writer and recipients. Help us to understand them, to see if there's any application that we can apply to our lives. We pray that you would be with us as we open our scriptures and that the same spirit that inspired those scriptures long ago will inspire our hearts in understanding them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, folks. I don't know if uh, I need to adjust this mic upward a little bit to be fully is that good coming through a little bit more question oh no not not up, up your volume but i have a question for you yes yes oh absolutely that's 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 understandable yeah it was a great question and actually gave me a wonderful opportunity I, I don't know. Am I being heard? Then I think this is fine. <laughs> no, no need to jockey around. Yeah, actually, it was an excellent question. And it, it's, I love questions like that because they force me to kind of try to articulate what's inside here. Like, because I think, I think we all can recognize that like, long before you can ever put words to your theology, you're thinking it in your head. You've got some ideas. And if someone asks you just the right question, it just kind of comes bubbling out. And, and that, that, for me, is, that's one of the, the greatest aspects of teaching, is being afforded the opportunity to be challenged and have, question, have questions asked you that helps you kind of formulate where you go next. And uh, yeah, that was, that was really good. And actually, uh, truth be told, when I did my homework on that and tried to pull together a response, I, I'm, I'm uh, happy to say that some of the things I said ended up being very fruitful for no, no fewer than three other conversations in my life. Young people coming to me and saying, I'm at, a, I'm at a loss. What do I do? How do I understand scripture? I'm really struggling with this, right? And then I was actually able to take and export a lot of that stuff that I was using to address your question to lots of other people who were like, wow, that's really helpful. And I hadn't thought of it that way before. So thank you so much. So, I, you know, they owe you a debt of gratitude. So thank you. So, um, you know, I, I uh, am flying by the seat of my pants. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just admit it. This has been uh, an interesting time of, uh, time of the semester for me. I'm uh, on the cusp of my midterm exams, so feverishly trying to pull together uh, an identity, like some sort of document that identifies what, in fact, we've been talking about. 
And, uh, and so my mind is there, my mind is with my kids who are all, now I am actually, you can hear for the first time, I'm actually clear-throated, I'm not sick, hooray, now all of my children are sick. <laughs> so I've given them the gift that keeps on giving. Well, so just in time, right? Anyway, um, we have, this is, it makes me, it really does actually make me quite sad that this is the, the last time I'll be with you. Um, it always ends up this way when I teach, I always have far more to talk about than I can fit in, in a, uh, well, you get, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll sneak in next time and I'll, you know, throw in like, no, that, that would be inappropriate. Um, it's very, it's very easy, in fact, given the, the amount of substance that is in the letters to just spend weeks and weeks and weeks on them, and even in, in some senses to focus just on the figure of Paul. I mean, after all, he did contribute the majority of the letters in the New Testament, and he is, a, he is a, an object of wor- wor- very much worthy of study on his own. And that, 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 of course, would leave us completely without addressing any of the so-called Catholic epistles, Catholic letters like James, Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude, um, which are very important in their own right. They have theologies to offer and uh, important messages. By the way, I did throw in, if you, if you were to look down on this, the a slide, and I believe if... if uh, do I have the clicker? Do we have a clicker anywhere? Actually, it will scroll. Oh, but if we do it that way, right. But what I mean is, you go back to the previous view, and then just, you, you can scroll down. Scroll down. The clicker will allow you to do that. That's, that's what I was saying. Um, hey, I'm an expert <laughs> in clickers. <laughs> so, you know, actually, just so the, the, the date there, the, the first comment, Hebrews, right, Traditionally, Hebrews is grouped with the Pauline letters, but there's really not a lot of reason why we should see it as Pauline. Uh, so what else do we do with it? Do we just leave it on its own orphaned, or do we throw it in with the Catholic letters? Um, well, just because, again, we don't know that it's for sure from Paul. I grouped it with the Catholic letters here so that it could be in some way addressed. Now, the material that I've given you that I hope now we all have printouts for, I don't know if Michael got to that, uh, the, at least what he's showing here, these are really a rough out of some notes that I have from a course I taught. And, and these notes, I'll, I'll acknowledge, these notes do not come from me. These come from Mark Allen Powell, who teaches at Trinity Lutheran Seminary in Columbus. Um, they are actually a part of his textbook design. He has a wonderful textbook that if you want to go deeper in your study of the New Testament, I highly encourage you to acquire. It's called Introducing the New Testament. It's um, a really wonderful work because Mark has done a really great job of being intelligent and academic, but not forsaking the faith element. So you can actually very much profitably read his words and gain a spiritual lesson from them. Uh, He also has done a wonderful job, he and his editors, of combining um, great concepts with great art. So the book is just chock full of these beautiful images from Christian history. Um, So, you know, sort of a blurb or advertisement for that. It It is the textbook I always use when I teach New Testament um, and, and therefore, it has a lot of, of it's been very formative for me. Now remember, I'm an Old Testament person. I'm a Hebrew Bible person. So for New, New Testament for me is sort of a secondary field, one that I love and one that I'm constantly growing in, but one that I'm definitely, I, I definitely tend to defer to people like uh, Powell. Um, anyway, to that end, these, these notes aren't necessarily something that I'm planning on going through uh, bit by bit, like fully, they really were mostly designed to present you with a more full sort of scope of information. Um, because I felt like if I can't necessarily talk about or address everything, then at least I can, I can give you something that you can chew on later. 
Okay, so uh, that, that way, you know, I can say, all right, I feel like I've done something of my job, which is to talk about the letters. You know, but before we get into the Catholic letters, I wanted to go back to addressing something that I was talking about previously, which was really about the Pauline epistles and uh, the, the question of, of what Paul is mostly focused on. What is that, that thing that seems to be the core, one of his core concerns? And, and the reality is, is that any one of these letters, if you take them apart, if you analyze them and break them down, you can see that these letters all teach all sorts of theology. They, they talk about who Jesus is and how we ought to relate to him. They talk about the, the, the idea of God that is at the heart of our faith. They talk about scripture. They talk about morality. All of these things. They talk about mutual love for one another. But in each letter, there nevertheless is usually some sort of guiding concern, some major idea that is the reason for all of those things. And it's the reason then that we need to master so that we can understand why does he talk about unity here? Because there's a bigger concern. And there are some letters where that's relatively clear. You know, for example, in 1 Corinthians, like within the first chapter, he starts immediately talking about sections and factions in the Corinthian church. And he says, some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Apollos. But did, did Paul die for you? Did Apollos, you know, is, is Apollos in the place of Jesus? You know, and, he, and he's addressing in that, in that letter, you know, disunity in the Christian church and why that's an offense to Christ. And, and I, I love the fact that in one of the most poignant moments when Paul is addressing the disunity of the church in 1 Corinthians, which seems to be the exact reason why he's even bothering to write a letter. Okay, he's writing to them because this church is just dissolving, it's breaking apart. And he says uh, in, in chapter 11, in chapter 11, well, maybe it's chapter 10. Matter of fact, I have a Bible. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> when he's talking about communion, this, this, is where, this is where he's talking about what is communion? How does it work? How should we consider ourselves when we take communion? It's, it's 10, 11, sorry, 11. Uh, in following up from uh, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen on, he talks about uh, how when they come together to eat the, the meal of the Lord, uh, it actually is the worst thing that they do. Because when they eat, there are all sorts of divisions that show up, right? And of course, the irony is, is that the, the, the meal of the Lord you know, Eucharist, communion, this is supposed to be the one place where the, where the Christian church derives its most quintessential sense of unification. We're all united together as one. We're all equal. And he says, yeah, and, and that's exactly the problem, is when you do that, it's very clear that the heart of your issue is disunity. And then he goes on, and, and he talks about, you know, what communion is, and how, in fact, because they're disunified, they actually don't celebrate communion, because they actually don't come together as one. And then he speaks very, uh, very eloquently about the tradition that he's received where, you know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, you know, he took, he took bread and he blessed it. He took a cup and he blessed it and he shared it. And all uh, the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood. And in this context, Paul says something that uh, is actually very important for the theology of some churches more than others, but is very important nonetheless. It says in... 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and the blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves 
and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who drink, eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. It is this reason that many of you are weak and ill, and some of you, in fact, have died. So, I come, I, mean, I, I come sort of by a long and circuitous route through evangelicalism and then ultimately through Lutheranism and now into ambiguity because I don't know where we are now. We're a sort of a non-denominational church trying to find our way. But a long stint in the uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, taught me that, that Lutherans in particular love, love, love to emphasize this passage. And they understand it very clearly to mean when it says those who fail to recognize the body and blood of our Lord will drink and eat condemnation on themselves to mean that you have to understand that the bread really is the body and that the cup of wine really is the blood of Jesus. And if you don't believe that very specific thing, then you eat and drink it and God will judge you for it. So you shouldn't, it would be better for you not to take communion at all at a Lutheran church than to take communion not believing that Jesus' body and blood are really present. The Catholic Church also holds this view. Okay? That's why non-Catholics are not invited or encouraged to take communion in the Catholic Church. Because you, in order to take of communion, the idea is you have to believe the correct things about the substance that you're consuming. Now, I think that is an interesting interpretation that takes that passage, and I say this sort of tongue-in-cheek, like I said, it come out of a Lutheran tradition. It completely misunderstands what Paul is saying, fundamentally. It just so happens that in the letter that he writes to Corinth, this first Corinthian letter, that one of the metaphors, one of the metaphors that Paul will address more here than anywhere else, in fact, I'm not sure that he even really talks about it in any other letter to any other community in the New Testament. He deploys the image of the body of Christ as the sum total of all believers. That's what the body of the Lord is, right? The, bo- the fellowshipping body, the believing body. And because this is such a unique image to Paul's address to the Corinthians, people make all sorts of misunderstandings of this. Uh, wh- one of the classic, of course, is my body is a temple, right? What does that mean? Your, when Paul says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, a lot of people go, and that's why you should eat healthy, because your physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? What, what, what's the problem with that? Do you know? Singular plural. That's right. He says, don't you know that y'all's body... <laughs> Southerners have a leg up on us, folks. <laughs> Sorry, Yanks. Okay? They have a leg up on us because in, in, in our dialect of English, we don't have singular and plural differences anymore. We used to, by the way. That's the difference between thee and thou and thy. That's a singular in older English. And you and your. By the way, if you want to know, this is a great tool, because you, if you don't have access to Greek and you can't tell if it's singular or plural... Pull out your old dusty King James, and anytime you want to know if your passage is dealing with a plural group of yous, yuns, <laughs> or a singular, the King James will tell you, because it'll say thee, thou, and thy if it's singular, and you and your if it's plural. Do you know that? Bingo. You don't need to read Greek. Just read the King Jimmy. No, so it, yeah, this is, it's, you got to have it. It's a good tool. Right. So in this case... Y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's no one person's physical body. It's the community of believers that forms the temple of the Holy Spirit. You all together collectively are the body of Christ in which the Holy Spirit moves and lives and dwells in a very special and unique way. 
that is counter to what most popular Christianity in America emphasizes, which is it's all about me and my individuality and the Holy Spirit living in my life uniquely, which I do, I do concede, I do believe that the Holy Spirit lives in every individual believer, but I believe that the Holy Spirit is powerful and especially present in a community in a way that he is not in an individual. And I think that's what Paul's talking about. So in 1 Corinthians, again, reprising a bit, in 1 Corinthians, Paul keeps deploying the image of a body to talk about the unity of the believers. You all together are a body. You are all members of one body. You are the body of the Lord. And that should guide not only your self-concept, but your morals and ethics. At one point, he even says, he says, it is because your individual human existence is bound up with the larger cosmic body of Christ that you should not use your physical body to commit sexual immorality because you're bringing that immorality into Jesus' body, which is inappropriate. So he sees us as even driving his morality and his ethics. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 11, and he says, anyone who fails to recognize the body of the Lord is drinking and eating judgment to themselves. Why on earth at this point would now body mean the actual corporal physical body of Jesus, whereas everywhere else in the book it means the church? And what is the difference? You know, why would Paul, at, all of a sudden, he's talking to a group of Christians who are struggling to maintain Christian unity, love and affection for one another, not schisming and breaking up and following different leaders. He's, he's dealing with a group of people that don't understand the vitality. Sorry about that. Whee! The vitality of the corporate body working in sync with the Holy Spirit. Right? These are people who don't get it. And so he deploys this image, anybody who thinks that way in disunity, right, fails, fails to understand what the body of Christ is really all about. And it's those people, he says in chapter 11, those people that show up at the moment of communion who eat and drink as if they're united, but inside they're not, those are the people God judges. And actually in that particular instance, uh, he's specifically talking about the rich and the poor, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, verse 21, When the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and then one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What are you doing? Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Uh, the image that we think we're seeing here is that either... The wealthy members of the congregation are bringing their own food to the church to supply, but they keep it for only themselves and they don't share. And then the poor people bring what little they have and they finish it very early. You know, imagine showing up at a potluck where someone brings like a roast chicken and a bottle of wine and all these wonderful fixings. And then they sat it at their own table and they don't let anybody touch it. And then another guy comes in and he's got a crusty loaf of bread. Right? That's, that's the image I think we're getting here. And Paul says, when, when you come together and you call that the communion, you demonstrate that you will have no understanding of Jesus Christ. Because that is not unity. So that's one op option. Another option is because he often talks about people going hungry and there not being anything left over, that there, there's a possibility that the wealthy classes, the wealthy believers in this community in Corinth, are people who, you know, they may own businesses, they may own shipyards, 
but they don't actually work in the fields. They don't get their hands dirty. And so the wealthy people, they kind of stroll into the church probably four or five o'clock in the afternoon, and they're like, well, you know, I guess my work's done, so I'm just going to hang out here, and oh, look, we got food. That's great. Let's eat food. And then, you know, they feast, and they drink, and they have a great old time enjoying fellowship among themselves. And then the poor people stroll in after the sun has gone down, and they can't work in the field anymore. And the poor people walk into the church, no less brothers and sisters in Jesus than the others, but there's no food left for them because everybody else has scarfed it all down. And this is where Paul is saying, and this is telling me that you don't get unity. And it's only after saying this that he goes, anyone who fails to discern the body of the Lord eats and drinks condemnation to themselves. Why on earth would we at that moment go, oh, but even though he's condemning them for their disunity and their favoritism and all that, at this point he's actually talking about a theological concept that you have to have in order to qualify. Garbage. That's garbage. (laughs) Sorry. Just is. (laughs) And I've had people say, well, can it be both? And I'm sure that's fine. That's fine. You can have both. But you can't have just the one, whichever is more convenient for your theology, right? At any rate, that's, that's kind of part of what I mean by reading Paul in context and having an understanding of what, what the main theme is that drives the letter, right? If you read Corinthians as if it's just a collection of Proverbs and, and, and dis, discrete sayings about theology, you'll completely miss how it all functions together. But if you read Corinthians and say, this is a church that's deeply troubled by their fractionalism and their disunity, then every single thing that they say from his comments about spiritual gifts, which, by the way, are also equally taken out of context, his comments about spiritual gifts, his his comments about sexual morality, his comments about how we should do communion, all of them, when read in the proper context, make sense. And And it shows you, like, oh, gee, you know. When a, church, when a church wrestles with its disunity, it can have lots of different forms. And now, all of a sudden, we know how to theologically apply 1 Corinthians, because anytime the church is in disunity, which, you know, happens frequently, 1 Corinthians is a diagnosis for you. Maybe not all of it, but some of it. Of course, one of the greatest moments in Pauline thought is when Paul wrestles with what to do about the Gentiles. One of the things that we see in so many of his letters, and again, when you grab this concept and you realize how powerful it was for Paul, it changes the theological lenses you use when you read these letters. For example, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, I think there's no Bibles for you. So, (laughs) deal with it. No. Ephesians chapter 1. And I apologize about this. I'm, I'm not used to this pinned-down microphone, and so I'm like having all sorts of um, experiments with it. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to listen to this, because I'm going I'm to read this, and I'm going to ask you to tell me what, what theological lessons we should derive from it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love. Okay? What kinds of things do you see there? What kinds of theological lessons, points do you see there? First, first uh, you know, verses 3 to 4. Christ knew us before we were born. 
from the very beginning, okay? And, and by the way, just, just knew us? He, he knew we existed? Is that what it says? Something a little bit further. You can take that further. He chose us, right? He didn't just know us. He chose us, right? Okay? Predestination. That's what we're talking about. What else do you see? He absolved us somehow, right? I mean, maybe you could read that in the, in the word blessing, right? He's chosen us to be holy and blameless. That's where you might be getting that. Blessing, and by the way, what is this? He's blessed us with what? Every spiritual, what does that mean, spiritual blessing? Well, I'm not promising you the Mercedes of your dreams, <laughs> but I've given you every spiritual blessing, but where? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does that mean? It's puzzling, isn't it? You know, does it mean like, like Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven? Like He's given you all his blessings, but they're stored up for you? Maybe that. Or maybe it's more like every blessing that exists in the heavenly places, like every supernatural blessing is now yours. That is something, by the way, that he will say in other letters. Paul will actually say, and, and, and I mean, this is a, almost, a, in some sense, a dangerous theological concept Everything belongs to you. And he actually says that. I think in Philippians. We'll have to look another time. But I encourage you to look around. In one of Paul's letters, either Galatians, Ephesians, uh, or sorry, Philipp- either Philippians, Ephesians, or Colossians, he actually makes a point of saying that you don't need to, you don't need to strive so hard because, in fact, all things are yours which is a very powerful statement. All things are yours. Every spiritual blessing is yours, right? Now let's read on. Five. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we also have obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will. Again, what word do you keep hearing there? Destined. Chose, destined us, right? So this goes back to the predestination, right? Now listen, I'm in a Presbyterian church, right? I'm pretty sure that, even though I wouldn't necessarily say it this way normally, the spirit of John Calvin is lurking around here somewhere. <laughs> I'm not saying that it's dominant in your theology, just saying that he's, he's, he's around. <laughs> predestination. The question that, however, we, we ought to address is who is the us? Who is the we? We all just assumed an answer. What did we assume? Us. Right. This is another problem in English. And actually, it's a problem in Greek, too, by the way. But not every language has this problem. Did you know there are some languages in the world where you use a different pronoun for the first person plural? You knew this. Depending on whether the we includes the person that's being discussed or does not. For example, if I say, hey, we're going to the movies later. And Ed says, we are? What are we going to see? I'm like, well, Ed, not you. (laughs) <laughs> this, of course, can lead to awkward consequences, right? 
hey, we have to, we have to work on that, that project sometime. Yeah, good luck with that, Carl. No, but you're a part of it, right? We don't have in our language a we or an us pronoun that let, lets us know if the addressee is a part of the group or not. So this is an ambiguity. We often assume when we see, when we see you in Scripture that it means us, and we often assume that when we see us and we in Scripture, it means us. We're, we're, and, you know, maybe this is a part of our issue, right? It's always talking about us. And, and because of that, our theology thus flows. Paul said, we are chosen. Therefore, all of us believers are chosen in God. We're all predestined. We're all elect, right? That's, that's sort of where... This, is a, this, by the way, is a very significant anchor passage for those who have a more Calvinist persuasion. So look, it couldn't be clearer. We're chosen in Christ. I want to show you something. Look at verse 12. All of these things, according to the counsel and will of Christ, verse 12, so that we who were the first to set our hope in Christ might live for the praise of his glory. We who were the first to put our hope in Christ. He actually defines who the we is here. We who? We who first trusted in Christ. And now listen to this. In him you also. All of a sudden now we just realize something. You should realize something right there. In him you also. Now because he's saying you also, we now understand that the we he was talking about didn't actually include us. (laughs) And that's got some theological teeth. We are predestined. And by the way, you also. And then this is what he says. In him you also. When you'd heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, which is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. From this point on, and this something that we often overlook when we read, from this point in the, in the book on, Paul completely drops the language of destiny. He never will again address this group of people that he's writing to with language of predestination and choosing. We often assume implicitly that he does, but he doesn't. He seems to be distinguishing two groups of people, those who were chosen and then you guys. But it's very clear that the you guys he's talking to are people he loves, people that know God, people that have an heir, they're heirs to God's kingdom. They have a promise as well. What's the difference? Well, let's see. So what we, what we learn from here in, in, in this letter of Ephesians is that there's a group that Paul considers to be chosen and elect, who first believed in Jesus. They're the first ones to believe in Jesus. And that they're the ones who are predestined to unfold all this stuff. And then thereafter was added to them a group of people who weren't originally predestined or elect or chosen, but have access to the same promises and blessings. What, what is he talking about? Does Paul, a good first century Jew, does he have a concept for what it means to be the chosen people of God? course he does who's the we it's the jews that's who he's talking about he's talking about the jews who believe in jesus the first to trust in christ is there predestination yes for jews (laughs) is there is there i mean does that mean that god doesn't know us i'm not going to get into that when does god know us what does he know when does he know it how does he know it that's for deeper thinkers than i am the point being we often will derive a theology from Scripture that we half understand. And in fact, if you take that as the guide moment, that here Paul is addressing a group of non-Jewish believers, and he is essentially saying, we Jews came first, the gospel is ours, God chose us, but he has added you to our number, 
It, re- it reminds us of some things that Paul says elsewhere. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation, but it first goes to the Jews, and then it goes to the Greeks. And then listen to this. Ephesians 2. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived according to the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. We were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, now he actually very clearly indicates who the you is, you Gentiles by birth, who were called the uncircumcision by those called the circumcision, by the way, this is just a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, which was hostility between us. The whole gist of his letter to these Gentile believers is that there is now no difference between Jews and Gentiles in Christ. And in this context, like everything he says about faith not works, right, by grace, we're saved by grace, which of course is the hallmark of of the Protestant Reformation, you know, we don't have to do good deeds to be saved, we're saved by grace. Yeah, maybe you you could argue that, but what Paul is really thinking about here is You guys don't have to engage in the kinds of works that the Jews do, circumcision, keeping of Sabbath, dietary commands. You don't have to do those things to be a part of the the project that God is doing here because he has brought you into the community by grace through your faith. So this whole dynamic that's so important for modern Christianity about faith not works in Paul's day was really primarily focused on how Gentiles could get to be a part even though they don't keep Torah law. And that is the core concept that completely explains what he's doing in Galatians. It helps explain what's going on in in some of the passages in Philippians. It's what most of uh, Ephesians is about. And, I mean, it's just, if once you grasp this concept, it's like, I can't ever read these texts the same. He is absolutely fixed on the notion that that God has done something incredible, something remarkable in the world, and that is that he's allowed non-Jews a place before him. And then he stands up in defense of those people to anybody who attacks. He's got opponents. There's a, there is, working throughout the Mediterranean, a counter-Pauline mission that, say, that says to other people, you can't trust what Paul says, you need to be circumcised, you need to keep Moses' law, you need to become Jewish if you want to follow Jesus. And Paul stands up again and again and says, that's false, that's wrong, that is clearly not what we've seen. God has brought the Gentiles in through his own grace, unbelievable grace. And by the way, 
This grace isn't just shocking to the Jews. Listen to what he says. Open up to Ephesians chapter 3. I think this is so, this is a real mind bender. Once you actually read it and understand what it's saying. In talking about the gospel going to the non-Jews, which we take for granted, but in Paul's day was like, are you kidding? God actually cares about non-Jews? Verse 5, in former generations, this mystery, the mystery of God working with the Gentiles, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, that the Gentiles have become our fellow heirs, members of the same body, here we actually have one of those uses, and sharers in the, comp- uh, sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is, this is what he considers an incredible mystery that all of you here, and I'm, I'm, you know, maybe, maybe you're from Jewish heritage, I don't know, but anyone here who's not from Jewish heritage, the fact that you should be granted access to God through Jesus Christ, he says that is a profound mystery. Of this gospel I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. And although, that I, although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles news of the boundless riches of Christ. That is to say, riches that don't know a boundary, right? They don't recognize the boundary between Jews and non-Jews. And to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. So Paul is poised in saying, I am a discloser of mysteries. I've opened up the great mystery of God to all people, a mystery that's been hidden forever, so that through the church, now this is where, I, where we get something really I want you to see, so that through the church, the wisdom of God in all its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'm going to repeat that, because I'm going to ask you to tell me what it's saying. <clears throat> Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me, to bring to the Gentiles news of the boundless riches of Christ, and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things, so that, this is the the purpose, so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why does God do this? What is the point? What is the purpose? What do you see? What's the purpose? So that. Well, what, well, actually, what Paul is saying is, he says, all of us will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but that, that's not the point. That's not the, end, that's not the end goal. That's a means to, his, to God's real end. What is God's real goal? Not just to everybody. What did you say? To reveal this mystery in the heavenly. What does that mean? To reveal this mystery in the heavenly places. Who is being taught? No, not the Jews. Who is being taught the wisdom of God in this passage? No. No, the Gentiles are the means by which God teaches the wisdom. Look at the passage again, especially verse 10. Not people. Yeah. They're called rulers and authorities. People aren't rulers and authorities. What is it talking about? 
supernatural beings that are in charge of some of God's kingdom, administration, angels, something like that. God has done this mysterious thing with the Gentiles as a performance to demonstrate how wise he is to angelic beings. Wait a second. (laughs) You all are God's theater. And you are putting on display, when God works in your lives, you're putting on display for supernatural beings who otherwise, apart from you, would not grasp how incredibly wise God is. That's kind of a mind-bender, isn't it? Without you, the angels wouldn't understand. What? <laughs> right? Paul, by the way, you know, not Paul, sorry, I think it's, it's First Peter, he says that all of the great things that are going on in the kingdom of God on earth are things which angels long to peer into. They don't get it. I mean, we have this sense that we are unimportant, we're irrelevant, that we're so small. But what Paul is saying is that the incredible things that God has done and is doing in our lives today teach angels. This is one thing that people don't often understand about Paul. When they they read his letters, they think of him as as if he's a scholar sitting behind a desk or a theologian working out some sort of philosophy thought. This guy kept on the move. He was doing pastoral work. It's only in the interstices of his life, between preached sermons and imprisonments, maybe during his imprisonments, that he had much time to do deep theological thinking. And this guy, when he talks, he sees himself not as a scholar or a teacher, but as a visionary disclosing a mystery of God. And people, we often don't appreciate how true this is of Paul, that he sees himself as as exposing a deep, profound spiritual reality about everyday life for us. And of that life, he says, you would be shocked at how amazed heaven is at what God is doing in your life. That's just sort of thrilling in a sense. There's something about that that just captivates me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Oh, we did, didn't we? Okay, that's right. Yeah. It was something that was new to be lifted up to me as well. Well, we all have this experience. Listen, I'd read this text, you know, long after I became a scholar, I read this text over and over again and never saw it. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, pop, it just occurred to me, what? What is he saying? Yeah, I mean, it just hits you, and then you're just like, whoa, (laughs) this is deep. This is deep. But, you know, what's really powerful about this is, like, like I said, Paul, Paul didn't get to this depth by being necessarily, although he did have background, he did have education, he did have training. I'm convinced that the way he got to this point was by working in the trenches with people and seeing God move. Right? Because his, all of his training was in Judaism. That prepared him in some senses, but it didn't completely prepare him for what is to come. And so much of his teaching in, in letters like Ephesians is born out of his lived experience. You go, oh, I guess God is doing this now. I see it in my pastoral work, right? Yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's, well, that's right. Well, I mean, you know, this is something that the psalmist wrestles with when he says, you know, what is man that you should be mindful of, oh God? You know, what, what is man that, that you even think of him or consider him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and yet you crowned him with glory. Right? You crowned him with glory. You know, to which of the angels does, does God extend grace and forgiveness? Right? 
Well, when the only angels that we know of defied God, God created hell and said, this is for you. Right? He, he, human beings end up, I mean, okay, again, according to scripture, right? human beings would only ever end up in that place by virtue of being associated with the people that it was really meant for, which is the supernatural beings. God doesn't seem to be as invested in forgiving angels as he is in forgiving people. He didn't make angels in his image. He made people in his image. We have a unique connection to God that even the angelic beings don't have. Sort of, right? You may, he, he's not wrong. You did make us lower in the creator order of things, lower than the angels, and yet you crowned us with glory. Glory, glory, not lore. Crowned us with glory. Yeah. Honor. Of course, it, being image bearers. God says, there is never to be an idol among you. Never make a graven image of me. But that doesn't mean that there are images of God. It just means that we're not allowed to make them, because God did, in each and every one of us. Everybody here is an icon of God. So anyway, the point being that, and that also, by the way, fits into something else that we see in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, that these are communities that live in cities where they are taught that there are many supernatural forces in the world that have sway and power and control over everyone. And he, in a spe- this becomes even more clear in Colossians. Paul says, that's not so. Because, in fact, Jesus stands at the head of all spiritual authority. And if your connection is with him, then you can bypass all of that. You don't need to worry about all that. In fact, you demonstrate to them things they never knew. So Paul, Paul juxtaposes that. Now, that, that's Paul, and you know, uh, you know, in order to understand any one of Paul's letters, it's helpful to understand them all and to get his theology. That's fundamentally different than when we read the Catholic letters, because the Catholic letters are author by author. And although there are certain shared you know, traditions and theologies across them, um, they often are doing something quite independent. You know, the first of the Catholic letters that I, I have a note on is Hebrews, and I don't have a lot of time to go into it. Uh, Hebrews is a really complicated piece. It's very long. It's not actually a letter. Um, it's almost like a sermon that was included with a letter. If I, didn't, if I don't miss my guess, I believe that this sermon was probably delivered at a time of year when the people were reading liturgically in the book of Numbers because it dwells so much on the wisdom, or not the wisdom, the wilderness tradition when the children of Israel are, are waiting to go into the promised land. And a lot of its messages are about that. But that's just the sort of formatting of it. The message of Hebrews is particularly uh, pointed toward the idea that what Jesus has to offer is greater than anything that's come before him. And, you know, the author, he, his, his, his group, his flock, seems to be wrestling with whether or not they ought to return to some sort of Jewish-style worship, offering sacrifices in a temple, or seeing themselves as, as being in need of that kind of spiritual uh, environment in order to really perceive God. And what this author says, uh, deploying, uh, which is interesting, deploying for the first time in the New Testament canon, Greco-Roman philosophy to teach them that heavenly realities in which Jesus participates are greater than the earthly realities that the Jews participate in. Um, In chapter, I think it's chapter 7 and chapter 8 in Hebrews, the author actually makes a very clear reference to Platonic philosophy the, 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 what's called the, the world of forms. That is, you know, I, the way I try to teach this to my students is Plato taught that everything you see around you is really just an impression 
of a more important and more significant spiritual world of reality called the world of forms. You know, I, I can look outside and I can see, even though it's not a leaf, there, are no, there are no leaves anymore, I can see there's a tree there. And there's a tree over there and a tree there. Okay? And you can look at a maple tree and you say, that's a tree. And you can look at an oak tree and you say, that's a tree. And you can look at a pine tree and you can say, that's a tree. But imagine you were trying to disclose this to someone who had never seen a tree before and they'd never heard this word before. And you said, that's a tree. And then they would say, oh, that's a tree. And they'd look at the oak and they'd say, oh, that's what a tree looks like. And then they'd point to the pine tree and they'd say, what's that? And you'd say, well, that's a tree. And they're like, well, it can't be a tree. They don't look at all alike. How would you explain this to them? How would you explain it to them? You point, you, know, you, point your, you, you point your child or your grandchild to an oak tree and you say, that's a tree. And then you point to the pine tree and say, that's a tree too. And they ask you, how can they both be trees? They look nothing alike. How would you explain it? <laughs> There's some similarities. They're both branchy. They have a central trunk, right? So have you ever seen a tree? Or have you only ever seen an oak tree, an apple tree, a pear tree, a pine tree? You've never actually seen just a tree tree, right? The treeness factor, right? <laughs> what Plato would say is that because we're able to classify all of those things as the same, they're all trees, even though they don't, they all have different things. There's no one tree that's only treeness and has none of these other characteristics, right? Then there must be a concept called tree that exists somewhere else that was the pattern for everything we see. Same thing for ground, mountain, sky, cloud, everything. Everything that has a share in the existence around us is patterned on something else that is impressing itself on a reality. That's the world of forms. And what the author of Hebrews says is that in that world, that supernatural world where God is, that's, that's the world of God, that there was a temple that was the that was the original that Moses copied when he made the tabernacle. And that's the temple where Jesus ended up offering sacrifice on our behalf. And what happens there is way more significant. And so we don't need, we don't need sacrifices anymore. We don't need temple worship anymore because Jesus has taken care of it in the most important place, above all things. The supremacy of Jesus, and by the way, what an important day to be commenting on the supremacy of Jesus, how he's above all things. This is the transfiguration of the Lord. This is the festival of the transfiguration, where Jesus goes literally up to a mountain, like Moses did, and then Moses comes to help him, (laughs) to be his servant, and he reveals himself to be divine, shining in glory. And God himself comes down in the form of his great cloud, which is, again, if you read the Old Testament, this is how God always showed up to the Israelites, in a cloud. And the cloud doesn't just come near, it actually envelops Peter, James, and John. It swallows them up. And then it says, the cloud says, or the voice in the cloud says, shut up, (laughs) he's my son, listen to what he has to say. Right? Well, that's Hebrews. Hebrews is a long sermon saying, listen to my son, what he has to say. Watch what he's done for you. It's better than anything you could do for yourself. That's Hebrews. So, (laughs) this is kind of ridiculous that I have to go like this. We don't need to worry about all this. There's more notes there about who's receiving it. We don't really know, but we do know that the community is wrestling with whether or not they should divert themselves into a Jewish-style belief system. Well, I had it kind of going smooth there for a second. Oh, you read them at home. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) Sorry, that's less annoying, isn't it? 
So um, you read those notes, you see what it's talking about, the, the idea of apostasy or veering off the road uh, away from, uh, from Jesus. I mean, it's, the long and short of it, by the way, I always teach my students is that what Hebrews is arguing is that sometimes in our lives we're going to feel lost in the wilderness and we're going to want to anchor ourselves to visible religion, clear signs that this is what we're doing. Invisible religion isn't bad, but if it completely absorbs our thoughts and our emotions and our hearts, and if it, if it serves the purpose of distracting us from understanding that things visible are only markers pointing to something greater, then we'll go astray. And I think this is why in chapter 11 in Hebrews, the author says, faith is the essence of things unseen, the substance of things hoped for. Real faith is going to look through, not at, it's going to look through the world that we see to see where Jesus is in it. James is fundamentally different. James, which Hebrews, James, and, and uh, the, the epistles after it, is largely, it's kind of a puzzle, it's largely a piece of Jewish wisdom literature, and very fruitfully, I always suggest, reading James, the letter of James, along with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, uh, what, what's that? Are, you're, oh, you're trying to get the picture. I thought you're, okay. Well, we are almost out of time, but um, James is largely a wisdom uh, teaching that mimics a lot of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, almost formally the same. There's, you can line them up side by side, and they seem to really have a lot, of this, uh, a lot of the same content. However, even though he talks about the teachings of Jesus, James very infrequently talks, uh, he, uses the, he, he very rarely refers to Jesus. And we don't exactly know what that is, why that is. We do have a feeling that this James is understood to be a reference to the brother of Jesus. He is the head of the church of Jerusalem. One of the controversies over James, of course, is um, in the history of Christian church, you know, James emphasizes faith without works is dead. And therefore, you know, you show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. That's how we would say it. Once, long ago, we actually looked at the rhetoric and we realized that's not at all what it's saying and it's more confusing and convoluted. What I think is fascinating, if we go back to the question of audience, who is this written to? James is written to the 12 tribes in the diaspora, the dispersion, which is a reference to Jews living outside of the Holy Land. What difference does it make if James is writing for Jewish Christians and not Gentile Christians? When he tells them faith is important, but you have to have deeds as well. Well, one of the things that we know about the early church, we think, is that the accommodation that was made for Gentiles to be a part included a caveat. If you're not Jewish, you can be a part of the community of Jesus through faith, but everyone that is Jewish is still expected to keep Torah law. Jewish people don't kick Torah to the curb. They still obey it with their faith in Jesus. So what if James is only writing to Jewish Christians? And that's why he says, faith without your works is dead. What if what James means by this is, hey, you Jews in the body of Jesus, it's good that you should believe in Jesus, but don't stop keeping Torah. What if that message isn't even meant for non-Jews? We read it as if it is, but it's not. Do we know? We don't know, right? But those are the kinds of questions you have to, have to, have to ask when you read the letters. Not assuming that they speak to you, recognizing that sometimes the you is not you and the us isn't you either, controls an interpretation that makes a little bit more room for exploring and saying, maybe things aren't quite as easy as they are to understand, as we think they are. There's more about James. There's more about Peter. All of these letters are amazing. There's so much about them that I wish we had time to go into. Um, I hope that I've given you at least some things to think about. 
when you go back the next time and you read these treatises that you're activated with certain questions. Who is this written to? What were they experiencing? What were their contexts? How would this have spoken to them freshly? And how does knowing all of that help me understand what it says about my life, what I should do? Who am I? How do I participate? And in some way, what is it about the church that is the body of Christ in such a way that even though I'm maybe not one of the original audience, we actually all belong together. We're still a part of the same church. We're not two different churches, the ancient one and the modern one. We're one church, transcending all boundaries, transcending all time, transcending, as much as we want to resist it, all denominations, right? Nobody has just that piece of the pie where they can say, well, we exclusively are the Lord's and you are not. We, we like to think that, but the messages of these letters written to these early churches tell us that's not the way to think. And what problems we may have, we may not share the problems of the church of Colossians. The Colossians were convinced that you should pr- pay uh, prayer and reverence to angels. When was the last time you felt like you needed to pray to an angel? Right? You, that may not be your issue, but that may be somebody's issue. <laughs> Any of these lessons you, you, you look at, they may inform you, they may shape you theologically, they may not, but their diversity speaks to the fact that we all come from different places when we encounter Jesus Christ. And where we are in our faith is not always going to be the same as someone else, but there's a word for us too. Okay, that's about all the time that I have for you. Uh, I've kept you five minutes longer than I meant to, which is, you know, I was five minutes late, so, or maybe 20 minutes late. I don't even know anymore. Thank you you for so much for this. I wish I had more time to unpack this a little bit more, but hopefully it gave you something to think about and chew on. And uh, may God have mercy on your soul as you try to figure out what I, what I was all about, okay? <laughs> all right, thank you. <laughs>